You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm an editor and a writer. Around this time of the year, I'm usually coming back from Toronto, with my head full of new movies from the film festival there. It's a good way to preview movies that will come out later in the fall, as well as titles that might otherwise be hard to see. I viewed the festival remotely this year, and so I connected with a couple of friends to chat. Critics Amy Taubin and Michael Koreski. We talked about a number of films, including American Utopia, Spike Lee's movie of David Byrne's Broadway show, the documentary MLK FBI about the FBI's relentless surveillance of Martin Luther King, One Night in Miami, which dramatizes the meeting of four great historical figures in 1965, and a French comedy that plays out in a prison, The Big Hit. And finally, because we just couldn't help ourselves, we talked about Lover's Rock, which is actually the opening night selection of the New York Film Festival. In short, there's a lot to look forward to at the movies. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a dispatch from Toronto, where we might be, uh, if it weren't for a few small things that are going on in the world. Um, but uh, fortunately, we're able to see things remotely and talk about the stack of movies that, that are available to us. Let's begin uh, with Amy, Amy Talbin. Welcome, Amy. Hi. Hi, Nick. And uh, Michael Koreski. Michael, welcome. Hi there. It's so nice to be talking to both of you. I, yes. heard, I heard a dull siren sound moving across one of your... That's on my side. <laughs> yeah, Probably but... a nice, relaxing thing to hear at the beginning of a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, just lets you know the law is nearby. So if things get out of hand, you know. Um, <laughs> um, so how has it been going for, for each of you? Uh, you know, festivals are, you know, for better or worse, a, a ritual for our, our fall, I, I think it's safe to say. I know for you, Amy, this is uh, technically the first time you are covering Toronto. So Yes. Well, I, I don't go to Toronto as a rule. For the festival, although I occasionally go to Toronto. Um, and in part, it's because New York is coming up right after Toronto, and it just seems like too much. And I've just never had a particular desire to go. And this year, actually, I committed to going when I was in Sundance. And then, of course, it couldn't be easier than sitting home. It's very strange. I mean, the whole thing of watching movies, having every movie available to you, the festival movies, the movies you've seen a hundred times that you can find streaming everywhere, the movies that are going to open. And there's no distinction between them. I mean, that's what's so odd about this time. One doesn't feel driven to find the next big thing because the next big thing might be the thing that oh, it was made 20 years ago and no one's looked at it in a while and it just looks like the next big thing. And there's a kind of equivalency about this. The thing that's interesting about festivals, however, is you can look at a heap of movies and like turn them off and on really fast without paying. <laughs> and <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's also... I mean, it's, it, you know, bittersweet just because 
it, there is a certain sameness in the sense that my, my TV has seen uh, better days, maybe. Um, so that's one aspect that's also um, strange about this, this plentifulness, but yet, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're sucking the world through a straw. <laughs> and the other thing about it is, um, you know, one is more concerned about the state of the real world than one thinks one can be by any movie. And it feels like, oh, an incredibly luxury or a guilty pleasure to say, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to spend six hours today at Tor- the Toronto Film Festival. I mean, that's really kind of bizarre. And you you discover what kind of movies matter when you could access any movie in the world or access none and sit around and look at whatever is coming through on your email and deal with that. This does give you a kind of perspective, you know, and I have much less patience with most movies than I would have last year. Yeah, yeah, Michael. How 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 do you feel about that? I know for you, Toronto is 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 an annual uh, ritual, um, but also you're not necessarily a fan of festival crowds. So it's it's, but you put up with that. I'm glad that you remember me so well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's because when we had our uh, Toronto podcast last year, um, I was in a bit of a state. I think. And I, th- I think I think the theme of the podcast became Michael's anxieties. So this is probably <laughs> I'm probably much more relaxed today sitting here in my apartment than I was there last year. So, yeah, part of me, ugh, I hate saying this, but part of me is just like thrilled to not be there. Um, and I know that sounds it sounds like a terrible thing to say. It sounds ungrateful. It sounds like I'm complaining about, you know, of all things, being privileged to go to a world class film festival and see a bunch of often very good movies and be in an environment of with like-minded people that, um, you know, many of whom I respect, not all of whom I respect. Um, (laughs) But I I have to say, like, I don't miss, I don't miss, you know, scurrying out of a movie theater like a cockroach the second that the lights come up so I can avoid talking to people so I can have, (laughs) I can have the movie to myself for just five precious minutes in my own head. Um, You know, things like that about the festival experience that I think you come to uh, one can come to resent. And I kind of sometimes wish that I were that starry eyed 20 something again, you know, looking at the world, the, the festival world, like everything was this amazing buffet, but you know, I've become, I've become crotchety. That said, I am missing the overall atmosphere and I am missing the enthusiasm around movies. And of course I'm missing seeing movies in a theater. Um, I, I think what, what, you know, what people who don't frequent festivals like Toronto don't know is that you often go to these movies, some of which are just phenomenal movies and while you're watching them people are just moving in and out of the theater at all times like you could be watching the new Simon Liang film Days which is exquisite and you're in the middle of this you know throat grippingly amazing 20 minute take and all of a sudden you'll see you know people from the press getting up and milling about and leaving and flashlights shining on the screen and so there again like i don't i only say this because i don't mean to idealize the experience all out of proportion there are problems with festival going so the fact that it's all switched to this you know the screener approach approach and watching it at home there are benefits to that um if you can make your own headspace for that and 
I found that I was able to do that when I was watching screeners this year. I, I actually had some really um, nearly transcendent experience watching some of these films. So, you know, I'm getting my, I'm, let's say that I'm getting my movie groove back. I'm at Falls here. I'm seeing some great movies. I'm, I may be watching them from home, but they're great movies nonetheless. That seems as good a, good a cue as any to to get get right to to the movie going. I, I should add a footnote that we're we're probably describing the kind of critic industry experience at Toronto because I guess if it is a public screening, people do do stay stay put. Um, but yeah, we don't absolutely. really get to those. Absolutely, um, I, I I did try to make the the point that it's usually members of the press yeah, who are doing yeah, that. Um, it's yeah, not, it's I'm not impugning. Um, Toronto ticket buyers for the Toronto Toronto general public who are, who are wonderful of course um so I, I think Amy maybe uh, you, you might want to start there's a movie that you're particularly um sounded that I have seen and I, I I do share your enthusiasm for so uh you can take it away yeah it's um the second film by Lily Horvat who is a um a Hungarian director uh and actually I haven't seen her first film but I heard good things about it, but nothing like, nothing would have prepared me for this because I think this is pretty close to a masterpiece. And I don't often say that. It's called Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. And the title is probably the least successful, the only not totally successful thing about it. <laughs> and um, well, how shall I describe this movie? It's uh, a love story. It's a romance uh, that's also, I think, a romance with consciousness itself, if that doesn't sound incredibly pretentious. And it's basically the situation is uh, there's a 40-year-old Hungarian brain surgeon. She's been working in the U.S. for 20 years. and um, she meets a Hungarian man. This is before the movie begins, uh, but we're told about it at a conference in New Jersey, which is where she uh, is on the staff of some hospital. And, um, you know, it's love at first sight between them. And the movie begins kind of like, oh, you think this is a, a middle-aged, rich link later after sunset movie. And they make an agreement, or she thinks they've made an agreement, to meet at that bridge in Budapest uh, in a month. And so she goes to this meeting, and of course he doesn't show. And she tracks him down, and it's easy to track him down because he's a famous surgeon who actually isn't working as a surgeon anymore because he's writing a great book about consciousness and the brain. And um, she finds him and she says hello. And he says, I'm sorry, you must have made a mistake. I don't know you. And walks off, at which point she faints dead away in the middle of the street. And she gets worried because she's worried that she's imagined this whole thing. She's imagined that she met this man and maybe this isn't the man or maybe she didn't meet anything, anyone in that this is a personality disorder. And so she goes to a shrink who we see occasionally. And she also decides to go to work as a surgeon in the main hospital in Budapest, even though she's told by her former pre-med teacher 
that you really shouldn't do this because she's in a class above everyone there and she'll be miserable. And as we've seen in other films, uh, hospitals in Eastern Europe aren't places you would ever want to be, either as staff or as a patient. And that's true here. And she begins to encounter him again. And I won't say any more about that, except that the movie is, it is so incredibly put together. And everything about it seems to me to be absolutely perfect. It's shot in film by an amazing DP. And it's shot in film specifically because she writes about what film is and how when you see film, it brings back to you memories of other things you've seen in film. And this film specifically uh, brings back memories of vertigo. It's not only that you see certain spirals and spiral staircases and that music has a very, very powerful effect and that it is a film about love at first sight and deja vu. But it's also that it turns the whole thing inside out because Vertigo is a very dark story, you know. Vertigo, if you look at what it is, underneath the fetishism of the romance, it's this really ugly story about this police detective who gets obsessed with this woman who's like the guileless assistant to a murder that she doesn't denounce. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of the darkest noirs, if you could see it that way. And this film is not about darkness. This film is about, well, it's about the Enlightenment. And it's about how two people who share an interest in consciousness and the relationship of the brain and the psyche and the mind and music can come together um, in this kind of amazing way. And so I love this film. I love everything about this film. Mm, yeah, it's so wonderful. I can't wait to see it. I, I really love what you said, Amy, about uh, calling it a, a, love, a love story about consciousness itself. There's such a feeling of in, in, in interiority with, with the film. Um, and, and there are many, many scenes and shots where you're just kind of sitting with, with uh, the main character. And I mean, they're not even necessarily showing her, you know, coming to some great realization or something. Sometimes you don't even know that, know one way or another what, what she might be wanting to do without it feeling like these are ostentatious, like, you know, long takes where, where we're, we're, we're sitting with a person and, and there are these, this kind of inscrutable kind of protagonist that we've kind of gotten used to having, you know, over the past, I don't know, 20 years in, in a certain, certain type of festival film. It's not at all like that. Um, that's that's really interesting about the, the DP. You mean you say that the DP has has written about movies? No, the DP. She and the DP worked together when they were in film school, and oh, okay. uh, his name is Robert Malley. And they just they got interested in the photography of Saul Leiter, and this film really looks like Saul Leiter, who is was a photographer who shot through rain and through windows and through glass. He was a New York photographer. And he often had women in his photographs that look kind of like the leading actress in this film. Um, but there is a kind of mystery that 
and the sense that you can't possibly see everything. You know, there's things going on in the darkness and in the shadows, but it's not dark in that sense. It's much more like mystery. I don't know. Todd Haynes also is in love with Saul Leiter and Mildred Pierce, even though it's the wrong period because Leiter's photographs are from the late 40s, his great photographs it through the 50s, through the 60s. Um, but Mildred Pierce, uh, he and Ed Lockman really looked at Saul Leiter a lot. Mm. Uh, but she wrote this wonderful thing in the press notes about why she shot in film. And she wrote that um, in a technical sense, celluloid is an imperfect raw material. It will never be perfectly sharp. It's grainy and noisy. Its range and color depth is narrow. It records fewer frames. Already you are choosing a physical material with limited properties compared to video. But the imperfection is irretrievably recorded into the material the moment you develop it. Films shot on celluloid have an indispensable need for the viewer's memories, feelings, and thought for it to fully flesh out any given story. And I thought that was incredible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is definitely a movie that I, I, I wished I was seeing in, in, in a theater. And... When it went into the festival, it hadn't been bought. I suspect it will be now because it was in Venice, but it didn't start to get any real kind of attention till people started seeing it in TIFF. Yes. Venice was the first jump on, on, the, on the diving board, and then this is the leap. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, another one. That was, again, um, I'll just call it Preparations to be Together. Maybe that'll be, end up being the English title. Sure. <laughs> anyway. Um, I mean, and it isn't a film, you know, the title now sounds like it's about quarantine. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Which it isn't. Right, that's true. Yeah, no, it's not like that. It'll, it also sounds a little... Uh, clever or understated in some that's kind of out of out of keeping with the film so um one movie that i think we've all seen is uh, also i guess technically the opening film of this year's uh toronto vessel and that is american utopia um or i guess technically the full title is david burns american utopia um, and this is uh, something that was originally a broadway show and uh, spike lee has directed, I guess, one or more of those shows, and, and, and into this 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 film. Michael, would you like would you like to start? Sure. Um, well, it was a poignant thing to watch on so many levels. Um, f- first, being that, uh, well, my husband and I were planning on going to see American Utopia when it was supposed to return to Broadway. I believe was supposed to come back in November of this year. It was, it was planned. It was planning on coming back because it had a, a shorter run and we were very excited to see it. So obviously that's not happening. Um, and uh, seeing the film just kind of confirmed how extraordinary it would have been to be there in the theater to experience this, but then also watching it and just remembering Jonathan Demme's stop making sense, which, you know, I believe, and many people believe I'm not alone on this, that it, it's the great, the great concert movie, the best, you know, the best directed, edited, maybe even performed concert movie. And so watching American Utopia at home, 
on a screener, as extraordinary and exhilarating as it was, I could only imagine what it must have been like to see it as I had stopped with Stop Making a Sense on the big screen. Because I've always... I saw it. You saw it? <laughs> yeah, I saw it in Broadway. You saw the show? Oh, see, yeah. I'm, see I'm very envious of anybody who got to. Very envious. Um, and I will ask you more about that in a second. Um, but I've, I've always say to people, you know, Stop Making Sense is great. I, I own the DVD. I love it. But it's nothing like seeing it in the theater. It's, it's so rousing. It makes you want to just rise out of your chair. And I think that Spike Lee's achievement here is that he's made something comparable. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I think that everything has to genuflect to what Jonathan Demme did with that film, but Spike Lee really has made a movie here. And it's not just a recording of a Broadway show or of a, of a, of a theater performance. It's truly a, a movie. And I think that there are only a couple moments where you can feel any kind of um, cinematic intervention, you know, I'm using air quotes, and one of them is truly extraordinary during um, the performance of Hell You Tombout with the, um, the Jenna Monet song that I don't, I wouldn't even want to spoil for those who haven't seen or heard. Um, and in those moments, it's, you know, Spike Lee does interject some images on the screen that are very important and very powerful because it's a, it's a protest song. Um, but for the most part, he gets at that cinematic artistry in such an unassuming subtle way you you don't even realize how close you are because you feel like you're just there there's nothing intrusive there's nothing overly stylized it's just a perfect feeling that he creates for the viewer like you're there watching this great great performance and um it was it, it really was watching that watching that even at home on the couch was one of the um one of the highlights of of my year I mean, that sounds like it's not saying much in 2020, but it, but it truly, it, it truly was. And some people might wonder, you know, why Spike Lee? Why did he make this film particularly? What is the connection? I think, that, well, it, apparently David Byrne had reached out to him to direct it based on what I've read. And the connection is just sublime. I mean, you're watching these two artists who are in a sense in the prime of their careers, even though they've been these New York mainstays for decades and watching them and feeling them working in concert together to create this, this performance um, is really special. So for anyone who thinks that this is just some sort of um, filmed piece, kind of like, you know, when they had put Hamilton on um, the Disney plus this year, um, no, not to impugn, you know, filmmaking that had gone in that, but this is something um, rather special. And I think any kind of reminder of David Burns importance and his genius is very welcome. There's a dish to the performance that I mentioned, there's, you know, the performances of everybody's coming to my house, glass, concrete, and stone, they are elevating, you know, and in this moment, I, that sounds like a cliche to say in this moment, I really have genuinely not felt such spiritual elevation as I did watching this in a long time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you feel like that. Um, I certainly felt like that when I saw the Broadway show and I had tickets to go and see it again. And then, I mean, you know, my friend Jessica Harper and I, we decided we wanted to live in that theater. Yeah. We just never wanted to leave it. Mm. Um, and we could have seen it. I could have seen it every night. <laughs> and so it's hard, you know, to then have an experience of sitting at your home and looking at uh, a little screen, but it's almost like 
even though it is quite frontal and it but cut so that you see things that you could never see um, even if you're sitting in the first row. Yeah. You can't get that close to the actors and to the musicians. Um, so it is a kind of different experience. But it is very frontal, and you do have a sense that you are the audience, only mm -hmm. there's no one else sitting next to you, but occasionally you see the audience that's there, so that's helpful. But it is just such a, on the stage and in the film, it is such an idiosyncratic piece. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's an idiosyncratic piece in the sense of just, at the beginning, there's a total absence of color. You have never seen anything that's this myriad shades of gray mm. on a stage. And what I can't remember about the, uh, the play is if there is that much then going forward, changes of gels in the lighting so that you begin to get a lot of color. That's something I don't remember about the play and I wish I did, but here that is extraordinary. But, you know, Spike has just always been so uh, attuned to musical theater of all kinds. And um, yeah. here, the difference between Stop Making Sense and this period of David Byrne is David Byrne has a band for this show that's all about world music. Right. And he's taken all those early songs and middle songs and turned them into world music. And that's what's so extraordinary in elevating about it. Absolutely. The, the influence of Fela and like all of the, the people that he has on stage with him become one with him. I never had the sense that I was watching a one man show with some backup people. I had the sense that I was watching a complete, um, you know, egalitarian state of being. And I mean, that's what he tries to achieve. And I think, I think he does. I really, I, I felt it. I, I mean, we were really basically off we were out off the couch by the time the film ended on our feet well it's it's really interesting i mean part of part of how that 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 happens i think is you know also the just the costuming and that everyone's in these gray suits and also they're all barefoot um right. and, you know the marching around and so there it, that was fascinating to me because you know to a certain extent you know you were talking about David Byrne, you know, at the time of Stop Making Sense versus now. I mean, in the music he was making uh, with Talking Heads uh, in like the late 70s and 80s, you know, it often felt to me that that was a New York or post-punk like skepticism and kind of sometimes playful sarcasm about a lot of things, including, you know, suburban life, um, you know, and but also just escaping that uh, to a large extent. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see these songs kind of put to a different purpose to a certain extent or finding, uh, emphasizing the kind of liberating energies in them, which have always been there. I'm not saying like there's been like a 180, um, but that was very interesting uh, to me to see that, uh, you know, and also, you know, that's really, Fela is a, is a that, that kind of makes me understand anew the, the way the, the crowd on stage is, is working. Um, I, I, I love Fela, so. Um, but, but also in the 80s, you know, you, world music was something that was, it, it kind of felt like it was commodified um, and became this kind of watered down kind of version of, of the different sounds and, and the different appropriation that was going on then uh, just sort of routinely. I mean, I think David Byrne 
is doing things in a more interesting way. But in that, that's not here. That's not present here at, at, at all. So that's another way in which he's managed to kind of give a, give a new life to, to something that had kind of a different um, a background, different use um, before. Um, so it, it's remarkable. I'm also just amazed, like, I, I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm, I, that this kind of movie is usually cut together from a number of performances, but but even so, there is just an impression of him as like this energizer bunny of a performer, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that is also just, you know, inspiring. And, he, and then these interesting, you know, what did you think of the, the kind of, I guess you'd say, patter <laughs> between songs? Because it was often uh, just really like, kind of profound and lapidary and like, a, a, I, I, you know, it, it wasn't just kind of throwaway chatter a lot of the time. You, you felt like he was, that was also part of the journey. And, you know, when I saw it on Broadway, they really did have people outside getting you to register to vote. Oh, wow. I mean, that, that uh, in the lobby, that whole political organizing wasn't just, you know, a gesture. It was mm. real in this show. Yeah. That's that's the part that's also I feel like the the kind of double sided nature of it just that the voting is genuinely a part of it and yet the show is still called you know I guess the album was called American Utopia for me there's a certain poignance in that what the thing that's central that should be essential and 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 just part of the United States is also almost utopian concept that we all actually are, are voting and able to do something with that vote. So it's interesting, like aspiration and also just reminder of, of things. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's where the earnestness that you're referring to comes from. You know, it's almost like the, what may, what, like what you're saying earlier, what may have seemed like irony um, mm. earlier in his career has come kind of full circle. Cause it's, it's the message now it's not, it, he's not uncovering anything that we don't all know it's earnest. This is the message, right? And if there's anything ironic today, it's actually, it's like, it's earnestness, right? So earnestness yeah. is ironic and irony is earnest. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a generational difference, I think, but um, he's, he's, you know, he, it's like, he's found his calling, right? In a way. Yeah. Um, more than just as a performer, but as a figure, as a figure for um, a certain kind of um, political thought. And it's just nice to see. And it's nice to see, that come out in, you know, urgent messaging that's in some of these performances for that to come out in such a um, like humane way. Yeah. Yeah, because there is a way in which, you know, David Byrne on the bicycle having his blog, there, there was a certain like path he might have been taken like in, in, the, in the 2000s. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. this definitely is, 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 is something else again, I think. Um, and Amy, did you want to add, add anything else about it or? No, uh, I mean, I think it's, Wonderful. I, I just am so glad it exists. So that's American Utopia, uh, which I guess HBO has. So that will be seeable. I think it comes out very soon. I think it's the mid middle or toward the end of October. I mean, the, the only other thing I want to say is when I saw him on the stage, he had been doing this show already for two months and he was going to be doing it for months more. And he had been they had been touring the show for two years and, you know, he's a guy in his 60s, and his voice is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe that it holds up night after night in that full range with that much precision. It's incredible. And, yeah. you know, it isn't like he's pulled back and said, well, I can only do this much or that much. Um, 
vocally, he hasn't done that at all. Physically, he has a little bit, but vocally, he hasn't, and it's kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, and his his voice is always something I've I've just you know happily puzzled over because it's you know I mean it it it's always been on you know the the, the paranoid kind of quaver is, is something people kind of latched on I think earlier in in his career, and and then you just end up finding these kind of different layers and, and, and richness to it. Um, yeah, it is, it is, has a, has a, a fascinating power all, all, all its own. Again, in a way that seemed kind of ironic in a way in, in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but now it just seems, yeah, full throated and, and, and earnest. I think someone should write about these kinds of pairings between movie directors and really great musicians and mm-hmm. singers. I mean, by accident, I saw shine a light the other night, and uh, Marty in China. I mean, that's the Rolling Stones movie that he shot at the Beacon at the, like 2004. It is an amazing movie, and that's an amazing pairing because they are so together. Spike and David Byrne, that's something else. That should be oil and water, but it isn't, you know. And Ellen Curse did amazing work. Ellen Curse. It, just amazing work because yeah. the camera is amazing in this. Yeah, yeah, it, it it did when you said it, it was it's very frontal, Amy. That's true, but there there are there are so many cameras that are being used, mm-hmm. and there's so many different angles and so many different vantage points um, that it's sort of thrilling. It doesn't have perhaps it doesn't have the geometric um, precision of stop making sense, which is which is a, an extraordinary movie for the way that it kind of slowly brings the audience in and builds and builds and builds to kind of an ecstatic fever. Um, but I think that there's a, a lot of thought went into this. You know, I, I think that there is the assumption sometimes that concert films are just filmed performances. It's just, it's so much more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, so well, how about MLK FBI? Is that that's something we've all seen? I think. Well, it has a, it has a good um, it has a good segue just because Ellen Carras shot Bamboozled and Sam Pollard, who directed MLK FBI, edited Bamboozled. And Sam Pollard edited a lot of Spike's movies. Yeah, when I think of Sam, I mean he's obviously one of the great editors, and he's done so much with Spike. When I think of him, one of the first things I always think of is the last ten minutes of Bamboozled. Uh-huh. That the, the archival, the, all the archival footage that's just mm-hmm. so extraordinary. It's like it's a you know it's a film unto itself. Um, the end of that. Um, but yeah, no, this is um, this was really really strong. I mean, it focuses very from the title you can tell. It focuses very specifically on um, Martin Luther King's uh, being trailed and tracked by J. Edgar Hoover for most of his life. So in focusing on that aspect it becomes um, kind of like a counter narrative, right? To the one that we all hear, which is, you know, oh, we all agree that MLK was just this revered figure in American life and American politics. And I think especially for younger viewers today, it's important for them to see something like this, to remind them that he was actually um, considered an enemy of of the state to a certain extent. Um, And, you know, the film is coming at a time when, uh, there are some years left before the FBI files are actually opened up. And I think that it's really interesting that he decided to make the FBI files on MLK that they had been um, amassing in the 60s, the 50s and 60s. 
a lot of which was done through wiretapping. And it's very interesting that he decided to make this film in the years preceding that. And I think that's, a, you know, it makes it essential. In 27, uh, they have to release all the files. Exactly. But they have gradually being, been releasing files that have not attracted all that much notice, but might be noticed any day. So in a way, this is a kind of preemptive strike. Right. Um, this film and an absolutely necessary preemptive strike. Yeah, I mean the the relationship between well, it wasn't a relationship. Hoover's obsession uh, with the black messiah, who uh, he obsessed about. It wasn't only. I mean, after someone killed Martin Luther King, there were others that he was obsessed with. Um, but Martin Luther King bore the brunt of it, and this was uh, a long history of illegal wiretaps. And I thought what was so interesting was how unaware King was of what was happening, or the degree to which he refused to take into consideration that Hoover was basically in every bedroom he walked into and that every hotel that he rented a hotel room, the managers were in cahoots with the FBI. I mean, that was kind of amazing to see his refusal to acknowledge that. And you can't figure out if he refuses to change his behavior or he can't believe it's happening or what. I mean, it was very strange for me to see this because, you know, in... At the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, I worked for the Defense Committee for the Black Panther Party. Mm. Uh, and I had a live FBI tap on my phone for a year. Mm. The FBI guys were in the basement of the apartment building uh, at 70 Riverside Drive, where I lived. My landlord knew it. He was intensely angry and embarrassed about it. Uh, but there was nothing he could do about it. I mean, he wasn't angry at them. He was angry at me. But he couldn't evict me because the FBI was tapping my phone living in the basement. Um, and so it was interesting to see and to be brought back to that time when you just thought, well, there's nothing I can do about this. And these guys are idiots. And... I don't know. I mean, I used to talk to them. I used to say, you want me to bring you down coffee? Um, and I, But, of course, I was a woman and I had white skin privilege, which Martin Luther King didn't. He had a little bit of privilege that he was a public figure, but he didn't have white skin privilege. So this film is really interesting in that way because there is this intimate relationship that's created, that's totally illegal, and you can see where it's going. It's also interesting to think about this film in relation to the Raoul Peck film, I Am Not Your Negro, that scene where they go and talk to Bobby Kennedy, because it was JFK and Bobby Kennedy who authorized the tap, who told Hoover that he could do this. And that's always a very painful thing to go through. But it was RFK, who was, the, who was you know, the Bill Barr of his day, protecting his brother. Um, 
even though I in some way thought he was a god in my naive way in 1968. That was very interesting to think about in relation to this film. Wow. I would say so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm just the audience now. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, can I just ask a follow-up question? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just, so have you, have you uh, like ever like requested those files or anything? Or Yeah, I did. Up? Yeah. I did. And they're all uh, obliterated. I mean, there's nothing you can see that's, ever, uh-huh. and my FBI film looks like solid black, you wow. know, uh, redact, redact, redact. Even though basically I was a girl. I was a white girl, and what I did for the Panther defense was I ran the mimeograph machine. (laughs) I took care of the cats in the office. I ran the mimeograph machine, and at a certain point, I organized a series of concerts to raise money for the defense of the Panther 21, kind of the thing that Leonard Bernstein's wife did uptown that New York Magazine laughed at um, because we were downtown, and I got... Yvonne Rayner and Phil Glass and Richard Foreman to participate at NYU at the Center on LaGuardia Place in this concert. And the Panthers all came and they listened to Phil Glass and uh, Huey was standing in the wing saying, I don't know, if an audience comes and they pay, that's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, so this is a yeah, this a secret cause of of, of yeah, avant-garde music scene <laughs> right. for the scene. Wow, that's incredible. The, the things that are discussed in, in in the film, people actually think that the surveillance at the time aware that it was going on, or I think that we were aware because we were aware <laughs> that anyone working in the left, and that's why it makes me so crazy today. I mean, we're getting away from movies, but. Yeah. The idea that Occupy, or to the degree there is something called Antifa, that they don't know that they're totally infiltrated, that makes me crazy. We did learn those things, and then it's very hard to make anyone who hasn't been through it understand that. Right. Uh, That reminds me of one sort of strange thing in the movie. Uh, They have James Comey. They ask him yep. to com- comment on on the you know infamous letter. I guess one of a few letters, I suppose, but uh, that was sent to Martin Luther King to some you know goad him into giving up whatever that would that would mean in its most you know malicious sense. Um, and Comey is like, oh yes, this is the darkest chapter of FBI. But you know, talking as if this is somebody that's in the past. Yep. Um, but Michael, did you do you have a you wanted to add any, any more about? Um... I don't know how I could possibly add anything more. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> I'm sorry. Because there's there's lots to talk about in the movie. I mean, it's beautifully cut. Yeah, you should not apologize for 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 elevating the discussion to that particular plane because I'm fascinated. Um, no, yeah, no, it's a beautifully cut film. It's actually and it, and and it also contains some pretty amazing color footage that I don't think a lot of people have seen. But you mentioned Comey. There's a Talking Heads aspect to it, but it's actually a really fascinating archival project, and I think that should be underlined. Um, there is a Talking Head aspect, but the kind of amazing thing that he does, that Sam Pollard does, is that, as far as I remember, there are no actual Talking Heads for 
the movie until the last five minutes. Um, all of the interviews are done through audio. And in fact, mm -hmm. they, they, keep, they keep having to identify people with, you know, keep putting their name on the screen, but their faces are not shown. Yeah, that's right. I, I was, and I'm glad you brought that up because I found that really fascinating, just hearing the voices and having to piece it together in your head and then having them identified later, I thought was, was kind of brilliant. It, it keeps yeah. certain maybe preconceptions are, are dashed by that approach, right? Yeah, and, and also just it, it keeps you in the time period. So you don't have that kind of yeah like the watered down feeling that, you know, good or bad documentaries have where you're constantly being, you know, pulled out of the past. And, you know, it, it also uses couple of clips from movies, you know, but in a different way, I think, than like uh, Errol Morris used to, you know, using clips from these communist paranoia era uh, films. It really foregrounds the editing, as Amy said, to, to keep the talking heads to the end because it shows the really masterful way he does weave together all these different bits of footage. So that's MLK FBI directed by Sam Pollard. Uh, which is in Toronto. And then I, I guess also we'll have a uh, showing in the New York Film Festival. And then has just gotten picked up by IFC Films. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. So, and they're releasing it in January, I guess, timed to the national holiday. Um, do we, I mean, I know this isn't like a favorite uh, movie of ours, but I, I thought it just might be interesting since it's sort of contemporaneous with some of the um, action in MLK FBI. Uh, One Night in Miami. Ah. A, a kind of strange twist on the great man <laughs> biography. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's for me one of the straight, I know this is a play, uh, I guess, originally, but this is one of the strangest genres of movie. The one where, let's see if we can go back to the moment where like two or two or more different figures met. And I, I never know what's supposed to come out of that. I, this attempts at some more profundity. Well, I guess they really did meet, maybe for five minutes or maybe for a whole night. Um, and it's four great black men at the beginning or the relative beginnings of their career, relative. Uh, Sam Cooke, <laughs> Jim Brown, Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali when he was still Cassius Clay. And the one thing I thought, I mean, I didn't watch the whole thing. I turned it off after a half hour, was that... These were four of the most charismatic men. They were probably charismatic when they were delivered, you know, when they were first born. And these were very nice actors. I mean, you know, they were nice young actors, but not one of them had any charisma. Not any one of them made you want to look at them, unlike the extraordinary black British actor who is the lead in Steve McQueen's movie that's the opening night at the New York Film Festival, that he comes on the screen and you just think, what are we doing here, Hamlet? What is this? <laughs> I mean, yeah. he is amazing, that actor. These guys just don't generate anything like that, so I gave up on it. Yeah, I, I did watch it all, all the way through because I, I I just had a curiosity. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't shake about what what on earth was, was, was going, what were they going to do with it? Um, and I mean, we don't, we don't have to dwell, dwell on it. I will say that there was one moment and, uh, one moment that had a certain power, uh, that I, I thought, and it was a moment that doesn't actually occur in, in this motel room where, where they're all gathering ostensibly to like celebrate after a, a victory by, by Cassius Clay. 
Jim Brown goes to visit. I'm actually not sure what their relationship is, um, but it's it's a guy who lives in a plantation house and and you know clearly comes from a family of of, of you know slave owning family probably. Uh, and they have this conversation, which is cordial. That Jim Brown's very sort of you know cautious about it because he he, he knows that it seems part of it an act. Um, but then kind of lets his guard down, and they have lemonade, and it goes on for a bit. And then there's just yeah this terrible moment of racist of, of abuse that occurs. That I mean it's not a total surprise, but there is a sting to it mm-hmm. because you can feel how Jim Brown has let down his guard at that point, and and then. Uh, you know, it didn't have the inevitability that those sort of scenes often have in movies about the South. It's, it had enough of a surprising sting. Um, but uh, maybe we can have a, have a grand finale by starting at the beginning of, of another festival. And I, this is one we've all seen, and, and Amy, you just brought it up, uh, Lover's Rock, uh, which opens the New York Film Festival. Originally was going to be in the Cannes Film Festival, if I remember correctly. I think it was. Yes. It, it was in that selection. I, I, you know, I say that partly because it's interesting to think that, you know, it existed. It was in the world uh, already, and it was also for British television. Michael, do you want do you want to do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I, it was a, it was a great segue since Amy um, had mentioned it just now because of the actor Michael Ward. I think is the actor you're, that you're talking yep. about. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because everyone in it is so charismatic. Um, He's wonderful, but yeah, Steve McQueen. I don't. I don't think that it's a surprise for you know for for anyone to hear that you know his output can be inconsistent to say the least. Um, I have had a lot of tr- a lot of trouble with some of his films. <laughs> to put it mildly, <laughs> I mean honestly, I, I'll just say I think Shame is one of the worst movies of the century. Um, I agree. Just, I agree totally. An astonishingly bad movie that I, I can't, that I can't believe a serious filmmaker made. I, I just I, I'm still to this day just gobsmacked by it. But also I like to laugh about it. So I'm glad it's maybe I'm glad it's been put in the world for that reason. And actually, um, because I think that film has one of the worst musical sequences that I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Very happy to report that I think Lover's Rock is actually a pretty wonderful musical um, of a sort. And uh, this is probably my favorite movie of his. I, I, I would say when when Hunger came out, I was I was certainly interested in it. And I thought that he was taking an, um, a, a very specific aesthetic approach to the material that I found at least interesting. I didn't love the film, but at least it was interesting. So I, um, I, I, I know that there's a lot of thought that goes into what he does. Um, I th- I th- this is part of, um, of an anthology series called Small Acts that is going to be, that's, I believe, BBC, but it's, it's going to be showing on Amazon Prime in the US, I think. It's going to be yep. a part series. I've seen three of the three of them, the three that are in New York Film Festival, Lover's Rock, Red, White, and Blue, and Mangrove. Lover's Rock is um, just a little bit over an hour. It's very, um, it seems kind of light on the page, but it actually plays in this really intoxicating way. It takes place over the course of one night, and um, it takes place mostly at a house party. All the films in the series take place um, in London's West Indian community, but over the course of many different years, from the 60s to the 80s. Um, and this is really just about attraction and about desire and about how music plays an essential part in that. And there's this really amazing centerpiece sequence 
set to the Janet K song, Silly Games, um, which if people, people may have heard but don't know, it's, it's, it has this incredible high note. That's it's almost ear piercing, but you 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 want to imitate it, right? You want to do that. That mm-hmm. you want to just be in that moment and sing along. And there's the, in the middle of the film, there's a scene in which the song is played almost like endlessly, and um, you can't believe how extended it is. And it's almost like a um, like a challenge for the audience, but at the same time, it's it's kind of like pure ecstasy, but it's also uh, it's so much of a good thing, I guess. And then the DJ gives up and it's all acapella by the dancers and they do it acapella for five minutes. It's amazing. It's really extraordinary. And at at that moment, all of my misgivings about his career just evaporated. They just kind of appeared. I thought this was such a brilliant, um, a brilliant moment in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very good movie otherwise. So um, yeah, I'm excited that it's the opening night film. I think it's a, I think it's a good choice. And I think that, <laughs> it, um, you know, opening night movie at New York Film Festival, it's not always, uh, not always the highlight, but this is, this is a, except for last year with the Irishman, which was great, but this is the case where I think it's starting on a strong note. And I think that it's the right, um, it's the right film. Let's just think for a second. I mean, this is the first film by Steve McQueen that I haven't actively disliked Uh intensely. And I really, really like this film. But as I watched it, I thought, well, they never would have had the nerve to choose this film if they were going to actually have to show it in Alice Tully Hall to the board and the patrons. The only advantage to it being an opening night film would be it's an hour and 10 minutes and then you can go to the party. But um, and, and that it, it, and that the, the film actually plays like an actual party film, which is very very rare for the opening night movie, at least. Yes, but not a party film for the audience that goes to Alice Tully on opening oh, night and pays you know fantastic well, amount of money to be there. So we got this only because this festival is online. For whatever reason, I'm happy that it does have the slot, but I'm also kind of relieved that it's playing opening night this year because there would have been something maybe distasteful about going over to Tavern on the Green after watching this movie. <laughs> so it's like, it's kind of like we all got off the hook or they got off the hook. It just felt like a, a breath of, of fresh air, you know? I mean, one thing I liked about it was just the, the, the kind of joy in it. That's a change, I guess, you know? And that's, maybe that's also why it's a, it's a good uh, opening film in that it's it's you know it's not a joy that's painted as resistance per se but it it, it i mean there is, there is a there is a it's something liberating again uh, i come back to that somehow uh, about yeah. the joy on the dance floor and the joyful physicality um you know just there's more than one scene that's just like long slow grinds <laughs> and close up yep. on said grinds um and and that's great you feel it and you also feel it despite having seen it a million times before in millions of music videos or millions of commercials or anything else, you know. Um, it's a dance that takes place in a house. It's like a house party, except they're charging them. Um, so it's just this lovely occasion. It just has a new, it has a new passion and you get the vibe. It's just, it's kind of bottling, um, bottling something that you can't really, you don't usually see done successfully and not done for our benefit as well. That's another feel to, to that scene, to those dancing scenes, which are kind of literally at the center of, of the movie. 
and kind of dilate time in a beautiful way too, um, without making too much a point of that. Um, I just love the way the energies are tracked in this movie. Um, for example, I can't quite tell if it's the brother or the half brother of someone of one of the women who have come there. He comes in and he's he's really angry. Well, he's he's her cousin, cousin. but he also may think he's her fiance. And she's done something bad in the family. She's not gone to his mother's funeral. And there's just these tiny bits of narrative that you can't quite, they're just mm -hmm. dropped in, but they make you understand that this isn't all so happy. Is it? People are dancing and people are joyous in dancing, but there's just enough of the life outside to think that, I actually expected that something would explode and something bad would happen. And I'm really grateful mm -hmm. that nothing does in the film. Yeah. However, yeah. I mean, something bad does happen and it's a near rape, but it's a near rape that is prevented. I have two things about this film. One is, yeah, the dance stuff is amazing and it makes you realize that Stephen Green had another uh, life as a visual artist. And he is so close in some of those dance sequences that all you see is the color of fabric on the screen, mm. moving fabric and moving mass on the screen because the camera is so close. But I also thought that this is such a guy's perspective because the women there at this party, a lot of them are going to go home pregnant. And at that point, their lives are going to be half over. And these guys are going to go on to their dance parties. You even have a woman there with her uh, infant. And they will bear the responsibility of what happens out of this unchan unchanneled sexual energy. And that isn't dealt with in the movie. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's not much that develops, but, I, but that's also part of the design. And in me, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, and it does, and you know, honestly, it does feel like television because of that. Mm -hmm. It really does. It isn't, it, it feels like an episode of a longer piece that we're not all privy to at the moment. I, I of the three that I've seen, so does Red, White, and Blue. Of the three that I've seen, um, only Mangrove feels like a full film and it, it, it is the longest it's two hours where the, whereas the others are closer to um, one a little over one but um it's not like he packs so much into those shorter pieces that they feel like full films they do kind of feel like sketches and i'm not i don't even say that as a criticism that's just how they feel like by design just visually want, want to also mention the you mentioned the, the fabric and, and but just the colors of that that are are, are captured you know, whether it's like the, the costumes or the, the glow, I mean, the publicity still that he's used for a while is, uh, you know, even, even better in context of a, of a light bulb. Uh -huh. That's, that's really beautiful. I mean, maybe I wonder if there's a gesture towards the, a, a greater context with this kind of semi ominous sight of, of a man doing some sort of maybe, I don't know, martyr walk with a giant cross. Mm -hmm. Um, who kind of appears and then reappears uh, mm -hmm. at the end, uh, assembling his cross for, for more, more walking. Um, so that's kind of lingering on, on, on the outside. Yeah, that was an interesting detail. I, I think it's, there's, there are a lot of things on the periphery here and um, 
you know, it, it's, it could be my um, lack of knowledge of the milieu, which is obviously profound, <laughs> or it could be my, um, you know, my uh, presumptions. But I, I, I felt like I wanted to see all five episodes to see if there are callbacks and how things tie together. I'm looking forward to watching a documentary about the genre of music that is called Lover's Rock. But uh, yeah, any other final uh, thoughts on, on, on festivals or, 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 or Toronto movies, I guess? Very, very, very briefly, I, I could say that it's, it's been a pleasure to catch up with some films that had played at other festivals earlier in the year that are finally making their way around. Um, I really, I, I really enjoyed um, the Heidi Ewing film, I Carry You With Me. I, and and I'm, I'm happy to say that I hadn't really read much about it going in, so I didn't know exactly what it was and I mm. thought it was lovely and very moving. And, um, and I saw in Malmkrog, the, um, the Christy Pugh film, I was completely taken by surprise uh, with, I just absolutely adored it. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's a, yeah, that's a bold uh, selection. I speaking of conversations in a room. Oh, Amy, did you want to quickly um, talk about uh, the French movie that you mentioned, the big hit? Oh, it's a comedy. But it's a bittersweet comedy, and it's it's based on a true story. And the true story is there is a guy, he's an actor, middle-aged, his career isn't great, and he takes a day job working, teaching acting to prisoners. You know, it's like artists go to prisons and do workshops, and he's doing an acting workshop. This The, the cast are all actors. This is not real people, although for... Sometimes I wonder. And after the beginning of him working with them, and it's difficult, they decide to do Waiting for Godot. And basically the film is rehearsing these convicts, different races, uh, to do Waiting for Godot. And uh, eventually they get it on its feet and they learn the words and they go to a theater and they're so successful that they begin to tour it to lots of theaters till they end up at the Odeon in Paris with very, uh, it's very difficult. There's a lot of resistance, you know, there's resistance to, to him, to the idea of the whole thing. Then the convicts begin to act like total hams and they lose the thread. And I will not, I, it's one of those films that I absolutely will not ever give away the end of it. Cause I think it's really important that you don't know. But Samuel Beckett said, when he heard about this, he said that there could never be a better version of Waiting for Godot. So that's at what the film is. And it's rather extraordinary. Wow. Okay. The big, the big <laughs> and it's very, but it's very small, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It's one of those French comedies with kind of strange-looking people who are very good on their feet and a lot of form. Uh, active comedy says actors in small parts and it's mm. one of those films uh, and I liked it enormously uh, so that's uh, that's the big hit that's I think that's probably the end for this this dispatch and we'll go back to our couches I guess uh, <laughs> where we were busily sitting thank you both Michael Amy for for chatting I uh, hope we get together again soon mm. uh, and maybe even in person someday who knows someday who knows that would be great thank <laughs> yeah. you for having me it was great hearing your voices it was great have, hearing your voices thank you for inviting me Nick and for doing this <laughs>